morning, everyone. I have to be honest with you, even after all this time, I still have this moment when the song's about to end and I'm like, holy smokes, I'm about to have to go walk up in front of like 3,000 people. So I'm excited to be here with you all this morning. Of course, we're gonna be continuing in 2 Corinthians and today we're gonna be in 2 Corinthians 7, verses two through 13. 2 Corinthians 7, verses two through 13. And I'll give you guys a second to turn there. Beginning in verse two. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. And we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Father, we so desperately need you. In all walks of life, we need you. And yet we so easily can forget you and so easily can forget how you've displayed your love to us time and time again. So I ask that today, that this morning as we're in your word, that we wouldn't be a people who walk away and forget what we heard, to forget what your word decrees, but we would be a people who are committed to live by your word and your word alone, who would be so in love with you and so infatuated with you that it would affect all aspects of our lives, that it would affect how we interact with others, how we approach others, how we think of others, and specifically with this text, that it would affect how we rebuke others and how we receive rebuke from others. God, you are the one who fills all in all. And even this morning, we are filled with your love. So let that be what we display throughout all walks of our life, private and publicly, people who are consumed by your love. Thank you for your son. 
who is the consummation of your love. It's in his name that I pray, amen. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. These are the famous words of the Puritan John Owen. And this is certainly a task that's easier said than done. And at times, this task can be almost crushing to kill sin, lest it kill us. However, we're going to see in our text today that God didn't leave us on our own to accomplish this task. No, we've seen all throughout this letter the need to discard self-reliance. And it's no different in this text today. And we will see the importance of godly rebuke and the value of friends who are willing to give it. We will also see the importance of how we respond to godly rebuke as our friends fight with us for our holiness. Our text today will show us that godly rebuke is a glorious gift. Godly rebuke is a glorious gift. Before we get into the text, there's some necessary background. We need to cover some of the ground that we missed as we skipped over half of chapter six since last time we met, and a reminder of the context of this letter in general. Throughout the past couple chapters, Paul's been calling the Corinthians to open up their hearts to him. In chapter 6, 11 through 7, 1, which we, went, which we skipped over, Paul insists that the Corinthians not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He calls them to cleanse themselves of all defilement and uncleanliness and to make room in their hearts instead for Paul. Right now, it seems that the hearts of the Corinthians are divided. There are veins of sin and ungodliness running throughout the church. Hence why Paul's written what he has to the Corinthians. And it's important to note, many believe that 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul references a previous letter before he wrote 1 Corinthians. So we have that previous letter and then we have 1 Corinthians. And then in 2 Corinthians, in chapter two and in chapter seven, Paul also references a previous letter. And this is a letter that he describes as, as one that he wrote with much heartache and much tears and much anguish. Some conclude that he may be just referencing back to 1 Corinthians, but it would seem by the description of this letter that it's a little bit more intense, a little bit more anguishable than what 1 Corinthians has in the book. Whatever you believe, it's clear that whatever letter that Paul is referencing prior to 2 Corinthians, it was one that was extremely difficult for him to write, that was written from a distressed heart. And we see this specifically in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4. Paul says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with a great many tears, not to cause you pain, but to show you and let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This information is important because it gives us the necessary backdrop to everything that Paul writes here in chapter seven, as he describes his love toward the Corinthians, especially in light of their response to that letter of rebuke that he wrote them. <clears throat> With this in mind, let's look at the text today and start in verses two through four, where Paul again appeals to the Corinthians to open up their hearts to him. He says, 
make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to you to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have a great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all of our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. In these three verses, Paul shows us that godly rebuke is rooted in love. Godly rebuke is rooted in love. Looking at verse two, Paul tells the Corinthians to make room in their hearts for him because Paul has wronged no one, corrupted no one, and taken advantage of no one. We've seen Paul authenticating his ministry multiple times in this book. He lives out his ministry as one who lives in the sight of God, not by cunning and not by trickery, but by the word of truth. And so in verse one, Paul tells us to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and to instead pursue holiness. Essentially, Paul's telling the Corinthians, cleanse your hearts. Get rid of the sin that nags at you and holds you back. And instead, make room in your heart for me. And know this, Paul's not seeking a place in the Corinthians' heart for his own advantage, but is for the good of the Corinthians that he tells them to follow after him. He's already told the church in 1 Corinthians to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And you can clearly see that Paul imitates Christ if you look at the characteristics of his ministry. He has wronged no one, corrupted no one, and taken advantage of no one. <clears throat> now, as we know, there were many false teachers going throughout the church in 2 Corinthians. And these were people who were corrupting people and taking advantage of them. And it is these people that the Corinthians need to cleanse themselves from. It's these people that the Corinthians need to put off. And Paul clarifies in verse three, yes, he's giving them corrective instruction, but it's not because Paul desires to condemn them. In fact, Paul says in the rest of verses three through four, I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all of our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. Paul's disposition here toward the Corinthians is clear, and we can't miss this. He loves them. They have a place in his heart, and he's willing to live for them and to die for them. This is so necessary for us to hear. It's so necessary for us to hear because even though it seems that Paul has every reason to be frustrated with the Corinthians, he's not writing to them or correcting them out of that frustration. We already saw in chapter two, verse five, Paul corrects them with much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause them pain, but to let them know of the abundant love that he has for them. Now, this is hard for us. It's hard for me. We get frustrated and our immediate response doesn't tend to be one of godliness. It's so much easier to correct out of frustration. But in our times of frustration, even when we feel like we are right in the situation, we must pause and think to ourselves, what if Jesus responded to us in frustration? Wouldn't Jesus have been justified to wipe us off the face of the earth because of how we treated him? And yet, 
when it's time for us to extend grace in the same way, we completely forget about the grace that was extended to us. We hear of this grace all the time, and yet even still, we're like a people who examine ourselves in a mirror and walk away, and within seconds, we forget what we looked like. So what's the solution? How can we avoid unrighteous frustration leading to ungodly scolding? Is it just a matter of willpower that we need to muster within ourselves so that we can have the patience we need to see things with clarity? No, no. In order to avoid telling someone off out of anger and to see situations clearly, we need to look at them through the lens of the gospel. We need to look at them through the lens of the gospel. It's only by remembering the gospel that we can have the state of mind needed to pursue godliness. I would guess that for many of us in this room, it's not knowing the gospel that's the problem, but it's remembering it. So how then, in our moments of frustration, do we remember the gospel? By making it a discipline to remind ourselves of it all throughout our days. We must redeem the time. We must engross ourselves so much in the truth of our need for God and how he has met our needs that we practically bleed gospel. That we wake up in the morning and we are satisfied with God's steadfast love. That as we go to sleep, our soul would bless the Lord who gives us counsel. That as we walk to class, we would rehearse to ourselves the fact that so far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As we make a discipline of praying, of meditating on the word, of internalizing scripture, you will find yourself more and more equipped to love others well. If your cup feels empty, go to the word and you will find a wellspring for your soul. It's by those means that you can find yourself less given to frustration and more given to be able to give godly rebuke. A rebuke that is empowered by love and not anger. Next, we'll look at verses five through nine, meditating on the idea that godly rebuke is a gift for the rebuker. Godly rebuke is a gift for the rebuker. Verses five through nine say this, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, that I rejoiced even more, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. These texts show us that in the end, godly rebuke is a gift for the rebuker. That is, the one who gives the admonishment in a godly manner, sowing such seeds in love 
will reap the fruit of his labor. We don't often think of the rebuker in this sense or of giving rebuke as a gift. But I think how we view giving godly reprimand could really change our friendships, our discipling relationships, relationships in our dorm, relationships in our church. I think this is extremely, extremely important. Rebuke done right is a beautiful thing in the eyes of God and a way to show to others love as we graciously and caringly point them back to God. And that's not to say that it's going to be easy to give rebuke. It's going to be difficult and it's painful for the rebuker initially. Let's look at Paul's example here in verse five. He says, for even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Remember, at this point, Paul had written the letter of correction to the church of Corinth. He has sent his friend Titus to deliver the letter. And when he went to meet Titus in Troas, Titus wasn't there. This is detailed in chapter two of this book. And so now Paul's feeling emotions of concern and anxiety as he's not sure what happened to Titus. He's not sure how the Corinthians have responded to his letter of rebuke that he gave them. He doesn't know what's going on. But you can see the emotions that he feels and the anguish that he feels. And this is not the attitude of someone who doesn't care and who just sent an angry letter to a group of people. It's evident that Paul deeply cares for them. And he, the anticipation of wondering how the rebuke will be received is no doubt painful and difficult for Paul to bear. And I don't think this is a difficult situation for us to relate to. How many of us have ever been in this position or maybe in this position right now where we see these patterns in someone's life that are just detrimental to their walk with God and we know we ought to address them, but we're unsure how to do it and we fear how the other person might receive it. If you're ever excited to correct someone, you may have to check yourself. On the front end, offering God the rebuke is really no easy task. And yet, if it's done right, offering godly rebuke can become a catalyst for so much joy for the rebuker. Look at, when, look at what Paul says, starting in verse six. He says, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. God, who comforts the downcast, used Titus as a means for comfort for Paul. And not just the fact that Paul was reunited with Titus, but because of the news that Titus brought about the response of the Corinthians to the letter that Paul gave them. God comforted Paul with the fruit of the reproof that he gave to Corinth. Titus told Paul of their longing and their mourning and their zeal for Paul. And this provided him so much joy. And it wasn't that Paul received joy because the Corinthians simply liked him. But the joy came from the fact that they received his chastisement well. Paul wanted to help them to mature in godliness. And the Corinthians had the same desire for themselves. And so we don't see them turn up their nose to Paul's correction. But they long for him even more. Do you see this? Paul's rebuke, because it was out of love and a desire to see holiness abound in the people of the church of Corinth. 
resulted in them having a longing and a zeal for Paul. They knew that Paul wasn't angrily yelling at them because of some annoyance that he had or frustration that he had, but he saw ungodliness and wanted to steer the Corinthians on the track of the path of righteousness. Continuing in verses eight and nine, Paul writes, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. It is so clear that Paul did not enjoy writing this reprimand, that this was a difficult task for him to do emotionally. But even though it was painful, Paul didn't regret it in the end. He actually rejoiced more in the end. And notice this, his joy did not stem from him being proved right. So often we think, if they could just see things my way, if they just did this how I said, we are far, far too concerned with being right and not concerned enough about being loving. We think there's joy to be had in the I told you so moments, but much fuller joy is had in the moments where people are spurred on and invigorated toward Christ. Brothers and sisters, if we rebuke our friends well, the gift for the rebuker is to see the depth of their relationship grow and their friend's pursuit of God strengthen. But this is a delicate operation and we need to make sure that we approach things right on our end. We have to ask God to examine our own hearts and to give us wisdom so that in giving a rebuke, we wouldn't come across as domineering or snobby. We also need to ask God to give us clarity in our discernment so that we are sure that the problem we want to address is truly a sin issue and not just a frustration related to personal preference. And of the utmost importance, we don't want to overlook our own shortcomings in light of us giving admonishments. And it's very possible that the first thing that someone may respond to you with is, you say this, but you, but look at what you do, but look, own your faults. Don't correct as though you have arrived and you want someone else to be as great as you, but correct as one who wants to extend grace and walk alongside. Because tenfold grace has been extended to you and to me. Next, in verses 10 through 13, we're going to see that godly rebuke is a gift for the rebuked. Godly rebuke is a gift for the rebuked. We've talked about the fruit of offering godly rebuke, but how about the fruit of receiving godly rebuke? I'm not sure if it's harder to give or to receive such a thing, but I do know this, that despite how difficult it may be to hear, godly rebuke is a gift for the rebuked. Verses 10 through 13 read, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. 
At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor was it for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. In verse 10, Paul presents two different ways to respond to godly rebuke. There's godly grief and there's worldly grief. Paul says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The difference between godly grief and worldly grief is the difference between letting your sin drive you back to God or letting your sin keep you from him. The difference between godly grief and worldly grief is the difference between letting your sin drive you back to God and you letting your sin keep you from him. Godly grief, Paul says, leads to salvation without regret. Godly grief causes you to turn away from your sin, to look to God and to pursue him. And note here, when Paul's saying it leads to salvation without regret, he's not saying that you won't wish you hadn't done the sin, but he's saying that this is a type of grief that you will not be sorry for going through because it takes you back to God. It takes your focus from sin to God, to the one who wipes all of our tears and all of our sins away. The end result of godly grief is forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. We should grieve our sin because our sin grieves God, but we should not allow this grief to render us paralyzed, to shackle us down as if God has not already broken every chain of condemnation from around the body of the believer as if he hasn't already removed the yoke of the slavery of sin from around our necks. No, the weight of our sin cannot crush us because it was born by another. And for that reason, we can and we do press on. Not as if our sin doesn't concern us, but because our focus is on our Father who preserves us and gives us victory over sin. And what's the effect of this godly grief on the Corinthians' relationship with Paul, their rebuker? Verse 11 says that he has produced earnestness, eagerness to clear themselves, fear, longing, and zeal, and the desire to punish wrongdoing. Paul says that at every point they have proven themselves innocent in the matter, meaning that they have reacted to this rebuke rightly. When someone rebukes us rightly, is this how we respond? If any of you are at least somewhat like me, it's way easier to get defensive, to push back, to justify or to make excuses, to point out the log in the other person's eye, etc., etc., etc. But people need to be honest. We need to be honest. I need people to call out my blind spots. I need people to help me identify sin in my life. If my goal is to mortify the sin that's within me, I need all the help I can get. So when we have friends who admonish us, not for their own gain or advantage or out of their frustration, but from a genuine heart looking to move us farther along in our pursuit of godliness, 
This is something that we should be thankful for. The people who are willing to say the hard things that we need to hear are the people who we should long toward and have zeal for. These are the people who we need to surround ourselves with. I can think of many friends and many conversations I've had with people over the past few years here where I've been pulled aside and people have just pressed into me. And to be honest, in those moments, I tend to think of every reason I can to justify my actions, to justify why I do the things I do, every reason why my rebuker may be wrong. But now, I look back on those conversations with so much thankfulness, so much thankfulness, because since those people were willing to address difficult things with me, I am now that much farther along. I'm that much more able to fight my sinfulness and chase after godliness. Can you think of people in your life who've done that for you? If you have those kinds of people, do what you can to keep them around because they're worth their weight in gold. In giving and receiving rebuke, the focus is not to condemn the person who did the wrong or even to defend the honor of the one who was wronged. But ultimately, to strengthen the relationship between the offender and God and between the offender and the rebuker. Paul's heart was always about promoting godliness in the Corinthians, even if it meant initiating a difficult conversation or writing a difficult letter. Brothers and sisters, let's make a habit of consistently reflecting on the immense love that God has demonstrated toward us so that as we think about people in our immediate circles, people in our dorm rooms, in our families, in our churches, on our teams, our understanding of Christ's love for us would overflow into our love for others. And if our natural heart disposition toward others is one characterized by love, we will find ourselves getting less and less frustrated and instead we will have an ever-growing desire to fill others with the same love that God has filled us with as God fills all in all. And this way, when we see a friend who seems to be veering off the path of righteousness, we'll be loving enough to put our arm around them and by the means of a godly rebuke so that they may walk in a way abiding with God, perhaps more than they were initially. And likewise, when a friend offers us godly correction in order to help us identify blind spots and to throw off the sin that weighs us down, we must see that rebuke for what it is not an attack on our, on our character, but the Calvary arriving to help us to gain ground against the enemy who would seek to overtake our souls. Let's pray. Father, you are a God who has given us many gifts. And one of the greatest gifts that you've given us are godly friends. We are not meant to be a people in isolation. Christianity is not a solo journey. But Father, you are so good that you would give us people and communities to live in that we would flourish and thrive and continue to grow in our godliness and our maturity toward you. And one of the primary means by which we see godliness promoted among friends is through the means of godly rebuke. So God, I ask that as we receive this, we wouldn't be people who turn up our nose to friends who would admonish us, but that we'd be people who lovingly receive what they have to say knowing that they're trying to push us toward you. And God, I ask that you would help us to have the courage to love others well, that even when it means having a difficult conversation, that we will be willing to address sin that we see in others' lives, 
not to make us look good and not of our own self-righteousness, but purely out of a love for our friend and a love for you. Thank you, Father, for the grace that you extend to us every day. As we go throughout our day today and the rest of our lives, help us to continually meditate on this, that we would continue to wrestle with the fact that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us, even in light of our turning away from you and our unfaithfulness toward you, that your love for us never wavered. Thank you for your son. It's in his name that I pray, amen. You're dismissed.